In this episode of Real Christianity, we tackle an important question. What's the purpose of the sacraments if they cannot secure salvation? In other words, what does the Bible teach about these signs and seals? And how should Christians think about baptism and the Lord's Supper in light of this truth? So get ready. All that and more coming up right now. Welcome to Real Christianity. My name is Dale Partridge. Now, as you know, this show is an audio and video ministry of relearn.org, where it's our mission to bring the church back to the Bible. One of those resources is one of my newer books is The Ground of Good Theology. You can pick it up at relearn.org forward slash theology. You can also pick it up on Amazon. The subtitle is A Beginner's Guide for the Faithful Study of God. This is a basic introduction to systematic theology. What is it? What, uh, how do you study your Bible? Just a lot of the basics before you dive in. You can read this in probably about less than 90 minutes. And so it's a great book. Again, it's titled The Ground of Good Theology, A Beginner's Guide for the Faithful Study of God. You can pick up a copy again at relearn.org forward slash theology. You can also get it on Amazon. All right, guys, let's go ahead and dive into this episode on Romans chapter four, verses nine through 12. What a blessing this book of Romans has been. I know to you guys, I know it's been to me. I've had so many of you guys offer great feedback for this teaching series through the book of Romans. Paul offers us this comprehension, a comprehensive and systematic view of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in a time where gospel fluency is pretty absent among Christians. A lot of Christians don't know how to present the gospel. They don't know how to proclaim the gospel. They don't know how to defend the gospel. They don't know how to clarify doctrines about the gospel. We we need Romans level teaching as often as we can get it so that we can have more gospel fluency. Uh, we need this intimate mechanics of the gospel so that we can enter into conversations about the gospel really at any point. And we can have a discussion with a person in their particular situation, with their particular questions or objections, with their particular uh, issues that they might be having with the gospel. So we wanna have a robust understanding of the mechanics of the gospel, and that's what Romans really helps us do. So far, the major theme of Romans has been the universal condemnation of the law. This is uh, that all men are condemned by the law, Jew and Gentile, and that justification can only be received by faith in Christ alone. Uh, Paul understands that the bad news of condemnation is what makes the good news of grace so good. Uh, He understands, as the Puritans often said, quote, afflict with the law and heal with the gospel. And that's something that we sadly miss too much today. We don't have pastors that are afflicting with the law. You don't hear a presentation of the law and our inability to keep the law are us making are making us unrighteous before the law and needing to be found righteous somehow through the righteousness of Christ through faith. And so we need to com- consistently preach a gospel that starts with the law and our inability to keep it, and our guilt before the law. That is the key thing. It's the bad news that makes the good news so good. So to briefly review, we've uh, been through the first four books of this, uh, our first four chapters of this great book. The prologue starts from Romans chapter one, going into uh, verses 17. And then you have this next big section, which is Romans 1, 18 through 320. And then you have the third section, which we're in right now, which is uh, really 
Romans 3.21, all the way through the middle of chapter 5. And what Paul is doing here is he's anticipating the objection of the Jews to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And so he's leveraging the testimony of the Old Testament to verify the doctrine of his gospel here in the New Testament. And uh, we, we saw the Jews really object to the idea of receiving salvation through faith and not by works. Uh, they talked about, well, they didn't talk about, Paul anticipated an objection from the Jews that Abraham certainly was somebody that was justified by works. He, at least by the work of circumcision, that had to have contributed to something in his righteous standing. Uh, but in chapter four, Paul corrects this objection by appealing to Genesis fifteen six, that says, quote, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, end quote. He takes it one step further. He talks about the 32nd Psalm of David, using the testimony of David to further uh, demonstrate the justification comes by faith, that even David recognized this reality. Uh, and he does this because he wants to show how the greatest twin towers or the men of Israel, these great men, Abraham and David, that if they were justified by faith and not by works, then all humanity will certainly have to follow in the footsteps of that system. And so uh, today in Romans 4, 9 through 12, Paul moves on from proving the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And now he aims to demonstrate that circumcision did not contribute to Abraham's righteous standing before God. Uh, and this is made very clear because Abraham was made righteous before he was circumcised. So if the previous section was clarifying that works did not contribute to salvation, then this section is to specify that even the great religious act of circumcision, a sacrament of the Old Testament, did not contribute either. And so if circumcision was not a contributor to Abraham's salvation, then the two natural questions are going to come. Number one is, if Abraham's circumcision did not save him, then what is the purpose of circumcision? So that's the first question. Number two is, if Abraham was saved before circumcision, then uh, does this mean salvation is available to those who are uncircumcised? That's the next natural question. So this really gets at the heart of the text today. So if I could sum up Paul's teaching on this section of scripture, it would really be that sacraments do not save, but point to the only one who can. That's really a summary statement of what we're going to be discussing today. Now, before we get into the text, I want you to notice Paul's approaching um, his tactics, the way he approaches the gospel. Uh, he's like a defense attorney. He's preparing his arguments and presenting truth while anticipating and answering potential objections or questions that might come as a result. Uh, he's always one step ahead and he's always prepared he understands the dynamics and the mechanics of the gospel so that he can enter into a conversation really at any point. And he understands that he has to get through the mind to get to the heart. And as we know, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And it's, it's important to make a distinction because it says faith comes by hearing, not by feeling, not by emotions. And Paul offers us a true example of biblical apologetics as he's really defending the gospel uh, through his presentation of the gospel. And it's something that we need to employ in our own presentations of the gospel when we have opportunities to share it. Secondly, I, I want you to notice 
what great lengths Paul must use to refute the human desire to justify themselves by works. Uh, You have to just recognize this as a theme. When you start to study uh, the book of Romans, you realize how much effort Paul has to put in to really make sure that people don't believe that they can make themselves right by their own works. Um, I've shared this quote from William Farley that says, quote, the default condition of our flesh is to earn it. We enter the world in love with legalism. We are convinced that we can merit God's favor. We love moralism and we resist the gospel, end quote. It was Martin Lloyd-Jones who also said, oh, how anxious man is to keep a little credit for himself, end quote. So we're gonna go ahead and read on uh, to go verse by verse to uncover the meaning of the text today in Romans 4, 9 through 12. It says in verse nine, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who were not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised, end quote. Okay, what a powerful passage of scripture he's using and leveraging the testimony of the Old Testament. So let's look at verses nine through 10. And it says, I'll just read it to you one more time just so you have it fresh in your brain. It says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. So the blessing spoken of in verse nine, when he says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also the uncircumcised? It's speaking of the salvation uh, that was referenced in David's Psalm, the 32nd Psalm that we talked about before. Remember, we're still dealing with the Jews' misunderstanding of the purpose and role of circumcision in salvation. So Paul's trying to continue to strip away any redemptive hope that they might have in circumcision. It, it does not secure salvation. And his big point here is that he's clarifying that Abraham was justified before he was circumcised. So in scripture, Abraham's imputation of righteousness, which we read about in Genesis 15, 6, um, that was 14 years before he was circumcised, which is Genesis 17, 1 through 27. And so uh, there's a huge gap of time between when Abraham is imputed righteousness through faith and then given the mark of circumcision Uh, as a sign and seal to the covenant promise. And so we'll talk about that. So this fact would surely bring about comfort to the Gentiles, right? Because the Gentiles are going, well, um, that's good news for me that uh, you can be saved without being circumcised. And um, it makes them essentially candidates for salvation. And it's the purpose, what he talks about in this passage of scripture is that he was circumcised before, specifically as a purpose that he would be the father of those who are not circumcised. And on the other hand, it would silence the Jews who continue to misunderstand the purpose and power of the sacrament of circumcision 
thinking that it was something that saved the person when in reality it was not. And so this is something that's a big distinction because we're going to learn some stuff here in the Old Testament sacraments that are still true of the New Testament sacraments. So remember, Paul's focus throughout his ministry is to communicate that no person, Jew or Gentile, uh, is saved by works, but they're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so he's what I would call a theological clarifier. Uh, he's he's not introducing any new theology. He's or or even doctrine. He, he's simply explaining the doctrines that have already been present, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament. And I'll clarify what I mean by that is that Paul isn't bringing in new gospel theology. You know that. Jesus brought in the gospel, the story of his life and his work on the cross and his passion ministry and his resurrection. Paul's ministry and the apostles' ministry is just to explain what happened and how it connects to the Old Testament and how it connects to his second coming. And so uh, Paul's a theological clarifier. And circumcision here, as he's explaining, never saved. It had never a purpose to save. Uh, and again, the question that becomes, well, what is the purpose? We'll talk about that here in a minute. Verse 11 says, quote, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. So circumcision was an outward sign and seal to Abraham Actually, I'll say it this way. It was an outward sign to seal to Abraham the righteousness that he was given by faith 14 years prior. So it was a sign that sealed to him that certified or validated or confirmed to him uh, what had been done 14 years prior. And so when we talk about a sign and a seal, I want to just bring some more clarity there. Uh, A seal is that it authorized or authenticated to Abraham that the righteous standing to him uh, that was given to him by faith was now ceremonially confirmed to him. Uh, Ultimately, circumcision covenantally sealed. They entered into this covenant there that God would be Abraham's God and that Abraham and his descendants would be God's people. And so there was a ceremonial reality that occurred from the promise and the imputation of faith that happened many years before. And so it was the formalization of the promise made to Abraham. And if his imputation was, for example, like a betrothal, uh, then the circumcision was memorialization of the wedding. And so this concept of a seal as you know, a certification or authentication, it's not limited to Abraham, actually. We can see this Uh, God sealed Jesus. We see this in John uh, 6, 27. Jesus says, quote, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give to you for on him, God, the father has set his seal. And so this is referring to the audible words of God, uh, the voice of God authenticating Jesus as his son during his baptism if you just look at that passage in context. And so God gave Jesus his seal of confirmation. So there's some other language there, but a seal can also refer to a mark of ownership. And that's another way to look at that. I think that's helpful. Uh, Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, it says, in him, 
You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. All right, so uh, farmers often brand their animals to provide a way of identification among whose animal is whose, right? Uh, circumcision and, and baptism also act as a seal in this manner to identify ownership. It's God's seal put upon your physical body. Uh, in the Old Testament, we have the circumcision of the flesh, which is a seal on the flesh. And we also have circumcision of the heart uh, or you know, spiritual circumcision, if you will, which is a seal on the soul. That's the seal of the Holy Spirit. In the New Testament, uh, we have baptism of the flesh and we have baptism of the spirit. And the baptism of the spirit is really a spiritual baptism means you're born again. Um, so whether you're Presbyterian or Baptist, uh, we have Baptists who aren't saved and we have Presbyterians who have been baptized who aren't saved. And so the reality is, is a physical baptism doesn't save you. Uh, you do need to be spiritually baptized in the same way that uh, an Old Testament um, saint would need to be physically circumcised, uh, but they would also need to be spiritually circumcised. And so ultimately God commands us to put on physical signs and seals to signify uh, the spiritual truths that have been promised to us. Now, circumcision was also a sign. And I want to talk about how that's distinguished between a seal. Uh, it was a sign in that uh, it was a visual mark of the promise that God made to Abraham. In a real sense, it was a physical mark that brought about spiritual assurance to Abraham. It also brought about spiritual assurance to Abraham's descendants that God would fulfill the promises made to Abraham. And so it was, again, a, a visual reminder of a spiritual truth. So physically speaking, circumcision symbolized um, the human sinfulness and guilt that comes through man's seed and how that guilt was cut off for those who were the true seed of Abraham by faith. Um, so if, if the physical sealing was to point to the need of a savior or the spiritual sealing, um, the physical sign was to aid in reminding us of the spiritual promise. And so the, 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 again, the seal talks about this uh, certification and validation and pointing us to the need of, of spiritual sealing. We, we, we need that reality. We need that spiritual circumcision. We need that spiritual baptism. Um, the physical sign was to aid in reminding us of that spiritual promise that was given to us uh, as God's people, as children of Abraham by faith, or specifically here, if we're talking in the Old Testament, as the lineage, the, the physical lineage of Abraham. So this is why chapter 27 in the Westminster Confession says, quote, sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace, immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits and to confirm our interest in him, as also to put a visible difference between those that belong unto the church and the rest of the world and solemnly to engage them to the service of God in Christ according to his word. Okay, so again, the question that Paul is attempting to answer on behalf of his readers, remember he's anticipating their objections or questions, is if salvation is by faith and not by circumcision, uh, what's the purpose of circumcision? And Paul gives this twofold answer, right? Number one, it's a sign and it's a seal uh, given to Abraham after he had faith and was imputed righteousness so that he would be the father of all who are uncircumcised 
And he would also be the father of those who are circumcised. That means they're Jewish, um, came through Israel, uh, but actually were spiritually circumcised as well. And so it says in verse 12, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So Abraham was circumcised after he had been saved for the specific purpose of him being the father of all future Gentile believers who were saved without circumcision. And this is the big and, right? It's the uh, coordinating conjunction. It's showing two equal sides. And he would become the father of all future elect Jews or elect Israelites who were circumcised physically, but were not just circumcised physically, but were also circumcised at the heart. So essentially, Paul is saying that Abraham is not the father of just the circumcision. No, he's the father of the faith for both the circumcised and the uncircumcised. But notice how he puts it in verse 12. I want you guys to read it here. He is the father of, quote, of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith, end quote. This is important because Paul introduces a category to the Jews that they have not thought about before. There are circumcised Jews who have faith and circumcised Jews who do not have faith. And so you can be a circumcised Jew essentially and be lost. And that's what Paul's introducing as a category here. And Paul has already made this point in chapter two, verses 28 through 29. I'll read it for you. It says, quote, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is a circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God, end quote. That is to say, um, just because a Jew is a physical descendant of Abraham and has been circumcised physically uh, does not mean that they are descendants of Abraham by faith. Jesus uh, demonstrates this in the 10th chapter of John, verses 24 through 30. I'll read it to you. He says, quote, so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered to them, Quote, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. End quote. John 1.11 also speaks to this critical distinction between having someone that's Jewish and circumcised, but also not saved. Uh, it's uh, John 1, 11, and it says, quote, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, end quote. So this certainly made the Jewish community that was receiving this letter, who were circumcised, uh, examine themselves to see if they had faith because they were no longer capable of resting upon their circumcision as the means to bring about justification or salvation. And so 
this is something that we should do as well, right? This is many Christians today are in the church who have received the sacraments. They've been baptized. They rest upon their baptism or on their partaking of the Lord's Supper. Um, They've received the sign and seal, but they have yet to avail the spiritual manifestation of those signs and seals. And uh, in other words, they're a part of God's covenant people. They're a part of the visual, uh, visible church. They have the, the covenant sign and seal of baptism upon their body. Uh, they, they participate maybe in covenant duties of worship and prayer and the Lord's table, um, but they, they don't actually have the thing that those very signs represent. And so Paul is making two important points here. Number one is that sacraments will not save you. They can only point you to the one who can. So that's point number one. Uh, Galatians 5, 6 says, quote, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love, end quote. So number two, he's introducing the reality of a visible and invisible church. And there are among the people of God, those who are truly not the people of God, right? We know that many people have come to church without coming to Christ. We know that people have been baptized that are not saved. We know that people uh, have taken the Lord's table that are not saved. We know that there are people uh, who are saved that haven't received baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so there's a lot of distinguishing realities of discernment that is required for the Christian to understand who is saved and who is not. And Jesus obviously answers this reality is that how should we know? Well, we can only know by their fruit. Now, what we need to see is the tragedy of the Jews misunderstanding the covenant signs and seals. So circumcision like baptism is a sign and seal of the righteousness of God, which is by faith. And the Jews, like many Christians today, have turned the sign and the seal of faith into a work that earns salvation. Ultimately, uh, anyone who does this in either the Old Testament or the New Testament are not the true children of Abraham because the true children of Abraham are those by faith. And there is a group of people that does this. We, we know that the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, believes in baptismal regeneration. They believe that if you receive the sign of baptism, uh, that that does regenerate you. And Paul is making it absolutely clear that justification uh, it comes by faith alone and that there is no means of generation or regeneration through the act of baptism. Um, so we have uh, also another example of Jesus having to correct this terrible misunderstanding in John 8, 39 through 47. It's a good chunk of scripture, but I'm going to read it to you. It says, quote, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we are not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. 
which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. End quote. Wow. That is a powerful passage of scripture talking again, Jesus talking to Jews, showing that there's a category that exists of being Jewish, being a descendant of Abraham, having access to the moral law, having the mark of circumcision and not being saved. And so the takeaway lesson really is that sacraments do not save. Circumcision does not save. Baptism does not save. So the works-based salvation of the Jews and the doctrinal uh, the doctrine of baptismal regeneration that we see in the Roman Catholic Church and even some other Protestant denominations that are questionable, it really is an abomination to God because it, it puts itself forth as a work that would make you justified before God when we know that it is of all or it is all of grace and that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. So sacraments are merely signs and seals that become visual spiritual aids for God's covenant people to be reminded of the thing that does save, which is faith in Jesus Christ alone. So hopefully that was helpful for you guys to understand a little bit of the distinction and the purpose of baptism, the Lord's table, and how these things are signs and seals and the purpose of them being identifiers and markers and reminders of spiritual truth uh, for a physical uh, visual aid for us. And we are forgetful people, right? We know this. We need earthly practices to remember spiritual truths. And so God is kind in the fact that he memorializes these realities in ways that we can be reminded and remember these things and not forget these things. I mean, every time we do the Lord's table, which we do each week, it's a proclamation and a remembrance of what Christ had done for me, that Jesus's body and blood those elements were the means to reconcile myself to the Father. And that now I'm reconciled and I can come to the Lord in presence of God, being perfect, made perfect because of the righteousness of Christ through faith. And so I get to do those things in remembrance, not of only of that Jesus is returning, because that's a part of it, but it's also that it's reminding me of what Jesus did. And it's a means of grace to my soul. It's a means of assurance that I am forgiven through this body and through this blood. And so there's there's so much here. And I want you guys just to grasp that of the crossover from the Old Testament sacraments to the New Testament sacraments, because we know that there is only one way that God saves people. And it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so the Old Testament saints were saved the same way that the New Testament saints were, were saved and the sacraments were operating in the same way that the New Testament sacraments are operating. So I'm hoping this is helpful for you guys. Uh, thank you guys for joining me on this episode of, of Real Christianity. If you guys haven't left a review, would you guys consider doing that? We've got, I think, over 6,000 reviews now, and they really do help the exposure to our show. You don't have to write anything. You just have to tap the stars in your podcast app. Uh, you could write something, and I will read it if you do that, and they are very encouraging to me. Um, so... Uh, we would love to have you guys do that for us. On that note, my name is Dale Partridge. This episode is Real Christianity, and we will see you guys next time. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. Also, would you consider leaving a review? You don't need to write anything. Just tap the stars in your podcast app. But if you would write a review, we will read it. 
Real Christianity is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Google Play, and of course, at relearn.org. You can also follow along on social media. Just search for relearn.org or Dale Partridge on just about every social media platform. Lastly, if you feel led to support our ministry financially, as we fight to bring the church back to the Bible, you can always do that at relearn.org forward slash donate. 